my name's, uh, as was announced, David uh, Nystrom. Um, uh, I teach at Western Seminary. Western Seminary is a campus here in Sacramento, uh, in Rockland, and so I'm a faculty person there. I teach mostly New Testament. That's my formal training, uh, is a New Testament. All that sounds really dry and boring right now, so you hear myself say that. Um, but grew up here in Northern California, uh, Bay Area, but also this region. My uncles were farmers outside of Roseville, so I know this region pretty well. And uh, a decade or so ago, I was uh, at William Jessup, then we moved to L.A. for a while, and now we reached that time in life where it was time to kind of reconnect with family. So I'm 58, so... Um, the horizon is in view. <laughs> that's, that's how I think about it. Uh, happy to be here. Um, so Wayne, your pastor, and I got to know each other first maybe 10 years ago. I was teaching for Fuller Seminary here in Sacramento, and he was uh, a student in a couple of my classes. And uh, boy, I, came to, I, I have a great deal of respect for Wayne, really enjoy his company. So I'm proud to say he's a friend of mine, and so happy to be here this morning. Uh, I, uh, nobody asked me to do this, but I'm going to make I'm going to uh, uh, make reference to two announcements. There was an announcement about a Zephaniah. Did I say that was a Zephaniah Bible study that meets at nine? nine. And someone over here went woohoo, just very, just <laughs> really in a timid sort of way. Uh, who who said woohoo over there? There you go. So uh, so I want to encourage you. Uh, you know, if your if your option is to uh, watch some more. Uh, uh, TV or come here for that Bible study next week, uh, choose to come here. Um, you know, having Scripture poured into us is really important. It just, it's, it's there, but it's not dead. You know, one of the, uh, we often think of words as, as dead, but I don't know if you've thought much about this, but some words are actually performatives. That's a technical term. They actually do things. The Bible says sometimes the human words fall to the ground, right? Because sometimes what we say, maybe we're just lying. Maybe, we're, maybe we intend something, but we're not able to come through. Well, I mean, we're going to meet it at 9.30 or something, but my car breaks down on the way. So even though I said I was going to be there, I can't make it. So the Bible says human words fall to the ground or sometimes that they cannot stand up. So a very vi- visual image. But the Bible says God's word, all, right? God's word, the word that goes forth from my mouth, God said, uh, it will accomplish the thing for which I purpose it. God's word gets stuff done. My word is like a hammer that shatters rock. That's a really great image. Um, so, uh, wow, to just have the word poured into you and to be thinking about it is really critical. You know, I think I mentioned this last time, but Jesus taught in parables, and when they asked him why, he said, so that you will not understand. His point isn't that you get confused, but it's that, wow, the best things in life come if we, if we bother thinking about them instead of just accepting them uncritically. There's something about that process of not just cogitation of thinking, but actually also being connected with it uh, emotionally, emotively, that's so critical. So number one, I want to encourage you uh, to come 9 a.m., I know how to talk. I don't know how to listen very well. Uh, <laughs> 9, 9 a.m. next week. And the other is the Truth Project that was mentioned. That meets, when does that meet? Thursday. Thursday. 
Um, you know, sometimes to be alive in, in the early 21st century, it feels like we, we Christians are totally embattled. Like we're the, we're the inheritors and the possessors and the keepers of some truth claims that, that are just like weak and wimpy and make no sense. But uh, I want to make two, uh, two observations or comments. Maybe the greatest philosopher in the world today is a guy named Charles Taylor. Uh, Canadian, he just won the Templeton Prize, like that's uh, like $900,000 just for being smart. <laughs> so, uh, um, but his recent book is called A Secular Age. And everybody who's reviewed it, so the first thing they say is it's almost a thousand pages long and it weighs like a pound and a half. So like, they talk about how much it weighs. Uh, but um, but his, uh, pe- his penetrating analysis of, of the current age is you know, secular has this image of being, um, of being anti-religious and neutral and rational and logical, but actually it's not. I think we all know that. Uh, our, our age is incredibly um, uh, dismissive of other positions. It's not open-minded. And what Taylor points out is, among, among other things, he says, you know, uh, spread throughout our culture is a, is a desire for the transcendent. The mavens of, this, of secularism, like uh, Christopher Hitchens, he's now passed away, or Richard Dawkins, they want to say the world ought to be a place in which we, we recognize that we're nothing but chemicals and there is nothing beyond our own existence. But nobody believes that besides them. The rest of the world, even if they're not believers, even if they don't want to go to church at all, there's this desire within them for the transcendent, for something beyond themselves. And part of apologetics is figuring out how to explain that to people in a way that, that makes sense and lodges in their, in, in their minds and hearts. Um, and the other, the other side is, um, I don't know if you know, there's a, I mean, I've heard this guy, there's a guy named Thomas Nagel, who is uh, one of the real smarty pants people who are a- atheists. And um, he just wrote a book, I don't know, three years ago called Being in Consciousness. And the point of this book is, um, is to say, wow, the whole Darwinian thing, that all we are is just this, the end of evolution, um, and that that explains everything, he says, I can no longer believe that. So he's not a Christian, he doesn't, he doesn't like Christianity, but what he wants to say is, his argument is this, how do you explain human consciousness, that we're aware of our own selves? What is the possible evolutionary benefit of that? that we have a heart even for other people, that there's compassion within the species at all. There's no evolutionary reason for that to happen. And his argument is, we committed, serious, anti-Christian atheists need to jettison that whole approach and figure out a new one. Because it doesn't make sense. Wow. So in a curious kind of way, the era we live in is actually way more open to possibilities for the gospel to be effective than, uh, than it seems at first blush. Maybe more effective than it was even, or open maybe even 50 years ago. So those are my two uh, commercials. Is that okay that I did that? Okay, that's good. Okay. Um, so, uh, so I'm going to be here this week and next week, and I thought, you know, I'm not, I'll just like preach on or, or think together with you on, um, uh, on two sort of central uh, 
passages. So today it's, it's the Lord's Prayer, not the Lord's Prayer, yeah, the Lord's Prayer, uh, Matthew 6, which is, is uh, Matthew 6, uh, I'm going to start actually uh, verse 5, so you may want to find that. It's on page 817 of my Bible, which won't help you at all, uh, but it helps me on my Bible. And then next week we're going to look at um, uh, pretty, a pretty central passage in the Old Testament, and that is you know, jo- the, the beginning of Joshua's leadership. I've never thought much about that, but you know, he's following Moses. I mean, that's like you know, being the quarterback after Joe Montana or something. I mean, you know, how do you follow maybe the greatest person in the history of Israel? And how do you do that effectively? And how, and, and, and how do you um, galvanize the support of the people? How do you, uh, and, and a real challenge. Okay, we've got to cross the Jordan River and actually establish ourselves in, Israel, in, in, the, in the land of promise. That's a pretty tall order. So, uh, so how, what's going on there? What's with the, you know, what's with this, um, uh, you know, the, the, early, the early stories of sending spies out and, and, then, the, and then crossing the Jordan? And how does, what, what does the Bible have to teach us about that? So that's, that's going to be next week. Is that okay? We need a lot of affirmation, apparently. So, all right, good. Okay, so Matthew 5. So what I'd like to do is, uh, we've got maybe, I don't know, 30, 35 minutes or so, and I would like to think together with you about this passage, a central passage. And what often happens is when you hear something that's, that's pretty familiar, right? At least I do. I'm sure you're, you're, many of you are the same way as me. Uh, we hear something that's pretty familiar. We kind of turn off the critical thinking I don't mean critical neg- negatively, but just the thinking, listening part, and just go on autopilot, and we start thinking about something else. The coffee we want to drink on the way home. I think about that a lot. Uh, so I, but, but I'd like to engage with you for like 35 minutes uh, on, this pa- uh, on this passage. It's critically important. So Ma- Matthew uh, 6, beginning of verse 5. So Jesus says, and when you pray, and, and this is the middle of this long Sermon on the Mount, when you pray... Don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand, uh, to pray standing in the synagogues and on street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. So, hmm, don't pray uh, trying to impress other people. <laughs> Prayer isn't about making a statement. It's not about, um, you know, like, uh, don't pray as if a, your prayer is like your brand new Mercedes that you're out just showing off. So don't pray that way. And there's a second way not to pray. Uh, but when, uh, and when you pray, uh, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. I don't, I don't, know, if you, I don't know if you've thought much about uh, what it would be like to be, not, to be not Jewish or not Christian in the ancient world. It's very difficult for us to understand what they meant and understood by religion. Because they didn't have any concept of like a personal relationship with God, which is so central to the way we think about religion. The Romans talked about their religion, and they had you know hundreds of gods. As they call it, the Pax Deorum, the peace with the gods. So in the ancient world, the basic idea about the gods was um, when things went wrong in your well. First of all, the gods don't actually pay attention to us very much. We are uh, unimportant to them hugely different than the way we understand faith. And, uh, and, they, and they thought the second major thing, uh, issue I, I think that helps us understand how they thought, was when something went wrong in your life, it was because you had angered or upset one of the gods. And the basic idea was to figure out which one and then do something, propitiate them, 
to calm them down, offer them a bribe or something. That's so totally different. So that's what's going on there. Don't keep babbling. Don't just keep like you're like you're casting around hoping, like you know, uh, fishing in the blind or driving blind, hoping you find the right, you know, the right street. So our faith isn't like that. Our faith is a faith where there is a God who loves, we believe a God who loves us, made us, cares for us, wants to be connected to us. He's trying to reach out to us and help us to, to you know, live the way he intended us to live. So don't, don't pray like the pagans, bab- babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. That's, that's telling. That God is our Father. To even call God that, that sort of familiarity, that sort of that warmth, that, that it's, been, it's intended to create you know, this uh, confidence and surety because um, you're already within the ambit, the scope of someone who loves you, cares for you, and, and knows you. So totally different. And then the prayer. This sentence how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So, um, really familiar. One of the most familiar, maybe, maybe words, among the most familiar words we, in our lives. Uh, but as you think about them, maybe fresh, uh, what strikes you just as we start? What are your observations? Everybody has yeah. Everybody has something to ask for for forgiveness. Yeah, that's a total bummer, right? I mean, that, that, that's really true. But um, I would. Uh, I got up around around five thirty this morning and 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 made coffee. Didn't really leave. Normally, I try to go out and go, like go to Pete's and get some. Coffee, but I decided I'm, I'm starting to um, be concerned about my cash flow, so I'm backing off of that. Just made coffee at home. I'm pretty sure I haven't done anything catastrophically evil so far today, but not so sure about the last 48 hours. So we all, we all, yeah, we need. As Paul says, that which I don't want to do, I end up doing. There's that power within us that, that is bent. Luther says we're curved in upon ourselves. In curvatus ad se, we're, we can't even, we, we, we can't, can hardly escape it. So yeah, we need forgiveness. I do. Somebody else had a observation. Yeah, it's a great observation. Give us our daily bread. Our Father. There's this corporate 
theme that overrides the whole prayer. Oh, about God, yeah. We recognize our poverty. We recognize we actually need something. We are not... I mean, I put it this way sometimes. I don't know how helpful this is, but the basics of the gospel is we're broken and we can't fix ourselves. And we need help from outside. And even after we come to faith, we aren't just magically, you know, fixed. Um... We actually, uh, what, what, what's, what, what, one of the things that faith changes is we now re- we, we recognize that brokenness and uh, the spirit of the living God come dwell within us and that makes it possible even for us to escape that, that the gravitational pull of our own selves. Are you tired of yourself ever? Oh, man. I, mean, I actually think I'm like a pretty good guy, but I get tired of me sometimes. Maybe not often enough, but... Sometimes. What else do you notice? Short, straightforward. Yeah, it, this is like, yeah, don't, don't blink. Like, wow, that's a sermon? <laughs> wow, I mean, that's like shorter than commercials. Yeah, you better, so I mean, you think, wow, but if that's it, it, requi- it, it deserves some reflection. The first thing to focus on is God himself. How would we value him? The second thing to focus on is his Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, uh, focus first on him and God, on knowing God's kingdom and his will. Like, huh. Yeah, my, you know, my, my, hmm, the pool I'd like to have doesn't uh, fit in there somewhere. There's no, it's nowhere there. Yeah. I'm a little confused by verse 13 when it says, and lead us not into temptation. Yeah. No, yeah, like, so is God this trickster father, you know, who, like, purposely leads us into temptation? So, yeah, we'll talk about that. That is, that is a kind of confusing, a quite re- reasonably confusing uh, section. Yeah, that uh, all that is true. I mean, we can. Um, we, I don't know what the, did we domesticize. Is that, can you, is that a word? I just made it one. Uh, I just said it, so it must be one now. Uh, we dom- we domesticize. We you know maybe uh, shrink him. Yeah, I think those are great. Both those are really great observations. And the first really, um, God's already listening. And unlike everyone else who had to work really hard to get the attention of the gods, pretty much every other religion, I mean, people are trying really hard just to get the gods to pay attention to them. But it's like, isn't there a, you know, Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof, at least in the movie, says, you know, okay, we're your people. I mean, could you choose someone else every once in a while? You know, <laughs> like, I mean, wow, you're, you're always, you're all, but, but you're always there listening to us. Wow, I mean, that's just, that, that was, that flabbergasted people in the ancient world. 
Um, in the second, in the 200s, there was a, a case where, um, when Christianity was still not yet the uh, illicit religion, um, Christians came before a Roman judge, and he he said, you know, in exasperation, we too are a religious people, but um, you keep saying that you know we're not really you, you Christians present this idea that we're not really religious, but it was such a, a different way of understanding religion. Not like gods who were uninterested, but, but wow, God is so interested. He's like, he's always there. Always. Listening. So passionately interested. So, let's uh, uh, look first uh, at, at uh, verse 9, and we'll just uh, go through them one by one and offer some observations and uh, maybe food for thought. Uh, so the first thing you note is our Father, and someone already mentioned this, our, you know. So I think we, we evangelicals particularly, we tend, and, and Americans, because we are um, individualistic. I don't know if you've thought much about this, but it's part of American exceptionalism, is the intensely individual nature of the way, the frame with which, the lens through which we view the world. And a part of this is connected to, um, you know, just our national history, and a kind of independence, and you know, and and uh, like my all my grandparents were born in Sweden, and they all left when they were like uh, teenagers, and one of them would, when she was fifteen and never went home. I mean, that's that whether she was that individualistic, but the pattern of her life was separation and be out there and be you know self-sufficient. So we have this as Americans, we have this intensely individualistic way of living, and that has seeped into uh, our, our faith. We, we, we talk a lot about my God, etc., and, and, and maybe what, uh, the, I want to find the church that satisfies my needs, it's, uh, all, those kind of, all those kind of things. But Jesus here emphasizes our Father. So good Jews would always pray that way, our Father. And you may remember that in John's Gospel, the authorities get on Jesus' case, because he says sometimes, my Father. And they say, wow, you're making God your own father, like distinct from him being our father. So the first thing he says here is our father. And I guess one application, the one that seems to make sense to me uh, about uh, our faith here uh, as believers is, um, and this is the connection, I think, to Paul. Paul understands this in Jesus, and his, his uh, development is this notion of the Christian church as a body, the local Christian church, this church right here, this community, East Parkway, is a body. And that means we need each other. And you're all looking at me. Look, I'd like you to look around the room and look other people in the eye. And the teaching here, part of the teaching here, I think, is, is the fact that actually none of us are, are complete in of ourselves. Uh, God has given me certain gifts, and I am totally bereft of others. I can't do everything, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, omni-qualified. I'm not omni-competent to understand uh, not, only, not only just things like in books, but also just even in, in how things are happening you know, socially and sociologically, we need each other. Just like different parts of the body needs, we all need the other parts. And we assign, we figure out, oh, I think the brain is better. We'd all like to be the brain. Well, if we were all the brain, you know, we'd just be 
quivering on the ground. You know, I mean, we, the brain needs other things. And we're the ones who assign importance. Some things are more important than others. Well, the teaching here is, wow, um, God's the one who assigned those gifts, those talents, abilities God's given you. And um, the world, the way we live in the world, kind of, we kind of have a sense of which ones are more important, which ones deserve more, you know, more uh, adulation. But when Paul reflects on this, he says, wow, it's the ones who are less prone to be regarded as high, as important, that in the community we need to make sure we elevate those. It's the way the world thinks that assigns a, a hierarchy or a priority list. So that's number one. Um, when you think about that, I mean, I, I do a lot of speaking. I have certain, uh, God's given me certain, put certain stuff in me, certain gifts, right? Well, I didn't deserve them. It's a gift. You know, why should I be all excited about myself? Because something I didn't deserve. But I, there are certain things I can't do. There's, I need other people. I need them around me. And so do you. We need each other. So part of this, our Father, is to live into that. That you are better and stronger as a group. And, and um, that means we need to allow other people into our lives. We need to see other people not according to the standards of the world. And we all do that, right? And we, we know who drives what car in the parking lot, right? You all know who lives where. You all know who's got X or Y or this or that standard of the world that, that the world says that's better than this down here. We need to throw that standard out. And understand that God gives gifts the way God wants to put the body together. And if we're not willing to approach one another and say, I, am, I need to be open to the gift that you have because I'm lacking. If we, if we don't have eyes to see ourselves as a body, but we only see the way the world does, well, then we're not living into this passage. That makes sense? Second thing to notice and I notice I'm gradually leaving the front and starting to walk around. <laughs> um, second thing you notice about, about this passage, and it's implied, I, I, I'm going I'm to extend a little bit, but even though Jesus here prays our Father, he is famous for saying, my Father. Now, what's that about? Um, well, you know, in, especially in John's Gospel, right? In John's Gospel, and you've thought about this, but in the first 11 chapters, Jesus draws attention to his relationship to the Father. I do only what I see the Father doing, 519. Uh, I think we sometimes have this idea that Jesus comes to earth and it's like he's had this long conversation with God before he comes to earth where, you know, there's like a 15-page, uh, you know, memo. Here's what you do. And he's just following along. Like it's some memory of a conversation he had with God up in heaven. But, but Jesus in John particularly says, I do only what I see the Father doing. Right now, right, he's alive, he has, while he's living on earth, he has perfect communication with God in heaven. Present tense, I do only as I see the Father doing. 5.30, as I hear, present tense, I judge. And uh, what Jesus promises in is that with the crucifixion and resurrection, once the resurrection happens, the Holy Spirit can come and live within us. 
And that's why from chapter 12 on, he starts talking up to, about us in the same way. I and you and you and me. That's chapter uh, uh, 17 of John's gospel. So that, that what's lacking, this is what I said earlier, we're broken and can't fix ourselves. But because of the crucifixion and resurrection, the Spirit of the living God come and dwell within us. Jesus says in John 16, you will know him, that is the Spirit. Why? Because he is with you, present tense, and will be in you, future tense, as a result of the crucifixion and resurrection. So what we have, and this is why Paul, when Paul talks about the Christian life, he says, hmm, in Galatians, huh, you know, you were in a jail cell. But because of what Christ has done, that cell door was sprung free. And you walked out. But why have you walked back in the jail cell and sat down? As if the door is still locked on you. You've, you've put yourself back in that jail cell. So the Christian life is, this, is, the, is exploring what it means to live in this close connection with the Father. The one that Jesus said, my father. Which is possible only because of the crucifixion and resurrection. To explore what that means. And so, back to this text. Our father in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, in the Lord's Prayer, is not just that we all share the same father. But if we've come to faith in Christ, we all share that same new access to God the Father. Where because of the Spirit, we have, we have God, the very the God of the universe actually within us communicating. What we need to do is start paying attention. Think, it's just mind-blowing what the New Testament says here. The God of the universe who built you to be in relationship to him. Think about Genesis 1, where our first parents are in the very presence of God. And they are naked. They're without, they're without anything between themselves and God. So they're perfectly known by God and know God perfectly. Sin, the first sin, disrupted that. And now we have the ability to live into that again. And the only thing that limits it is our inattention to it. So Augustine said, this is so beautiful. Angusta est domus anime. Narrow is the dwelling place of my soul, O oh God. Help me to expand it. The Spirit of the living God dwells in us. But we've got him stuck in a 400 square foot apartment. Let's, let's build some crazy. You hear about that mansion at Lake Tahoe that's like 16,000 square feet? Let's build a let's build a sixteen thousand square foot mansion for God in our hearts. Does that make sense? Our Father, wow! God loves us. He made us. He wants nothing more to be connected to us, but also not just us as a series of individuals, but us as a body, helping us understand that we need each other. But let's also recognize what's my Father. We have that close, intimate connection with God. So, our Father, who is in heaven. Somebody mentioned this earlier about just God's awesomeness. If the earth were the size of a pea, think about that, just the size of a pea. The next closest star besides the sun would be 11,000 miles away. It would be all the way on the other side of the, of the planet. 
just think about how big a P is. How many P's would be between here and Lake Tahoe? A lot of a lot of P's. Even if you had really big green giant P's, they'd be a long, be a lot. This will be a lot of them. Now imagine how many be for eleven thousand miles, and that's just the next star in our galaxy. I don't know how many times you'd want to multiply to go to the edge of the galaxy. That's what God made. And sometimes I'm pretty happy with myself for being all that. Wow. Our Father was in heaven. Heaven isn't the same as the universe, but it's a way of saying, wow, let's remember a sense of scale here. No matter how important you think you are, maybe no matter how important you really are in your social world, even if you're the Roman emperor, let's remember a sense of scale here. Isaiah, I remember, framed it this way. In Isaiah 6, he said, um, I was in the temple, and, and, you know, and I saw God. And actually, what I saw was the hem of his robe filled the temple. So this kind of image of like, like this giant human being he was so tall that it makes the temple like, like the size of a Lego thing. So that, that's what he's trying to express. So on the one hand, as God is, it, wants, it made us, loves us, wants to be intimate with us, let's also not forget a sense of scale. He is the creator of the universe. We should bask in his, in his affection and his love for us, but let's not forget that sense of scale. He came down to us. Loves us, created us. But who are we next to him? But God is also holy. That's a really interesting concept in the Old Testament. That's actually in the Bible. Holiness. What, when you, what, what strikes you when you hear the word holy? What comes to mind? Pure. Pardon? Pure. Yeah, pure. What else? Perfect. Perfect. Sinless. Yeah, sinless. Holiness is this really, it, it's, a, it's a very elusive concept in some ways. Uh, so remember there's this guy Uzzah in the, in the Old Testament. They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And, the, and, and they're supposed to carry it on poles. But instead they've got it on a cart. And at one point the oxen stumble or something and, and the Ark is about to fall off. And so Uzzah just kind of almost by, you know, uh, by instinctual reaction reaches out to steady it. And, uh, he, you know, and he's killed. Because you can't touch the holiness of the ark. And think about what God says about the mountain, right? It's my holy mountain. Don't tell them not to get too close. And yet, God also says, be holy for I am holy. Holiness in the Old Testament seems to like it needs to be protected somehow, right? Like if people that are unclean, the woman with the flow of blood or a leper, if they touch you, you become unclean. But whatever is in the Holy of Holies, according to Leviticus, if something that, if something that, that is unclean or something, whatever is not in the Holy of Holies, if it touches what's in the Holy of Holies, 
then it can become clean. So holiness also has a power that's, that's just totally wacky awesome. It can make clean and pure whatever it, whatever it touches. So if nothing else, this is, a, this is a, an injunction. Wow, fasten your minds on, what, on the things of God. I think we all know things that are unholy. Sometimes we see them by accident. We encounter them by accident. Sometimes by intention. So be holy, for I am holy. And then, hallowed be your name. <clears throat> so I, I, I grew up going to church every Sunday. I mean, when, when, when we, our vacations when I was a kid, we, I, I don't think I was in a hotel until I was 20 in my life. Uh, I know that's not quite true. We went to one, I think. Um, so mostly we went away to visit, like, relatives. But we'd always come home Saturday night because our church was where we were supposed to be. So we had very limited vacations when I was a, when I was a kid. Um, uh, I don't know why was I saying that. I've lost my train of thought. I know. Hallowed be your name. Yeah, no idea why I was saying that. <laughs> Oh, I know why. Uh, so I went to church every Sunday, and I had a lot of Sunday school time, a lot of, listened to a lot of sermons, went all the way through seminary, and I still didn't really know what hallowed means, hallowed. Never really occurred, occurred to me to think about it, but what, you know, what's hallowed? Hallowed be your name. I think when I thought about even as a graduate of seminary, I thought, if I would have thought about it, I thought, okay, okay, God, go do that hallowed thing you do. Don't want to know what that is, but go do that. Hallowed be your name. You go do that. Uh, but I've since understood that hallowed is something, um, it's actually something we do. So in Ezekiel 36, I don't know if you've thought about this passage, or maybe you can read it later on today or something this week, but, but God says to his people, uh, huh, I'm going to have to hallow my own name. Because the people who live around you have drawn the wrong conclusions about me. And it's not their fault. You're my people. If they want to know about me, they're going to look at you to draw conclusions about me because you're my people. And you haven't lived according to who I am, so they have drawn wrong conclusions about me. And it ain't their fault because you're my people. And then God says, this is the passage in Ezekiel 36 that presages the, what I've just said about the resurrection and the spirit of the living God. He says, I'm going to have to take out that heart of stone that's in you. You've got a heart of stone in you. And I'm going to have to put in a heart of flesh so that you're able to respond to the Holy Spirit. And then I'm going to sprinkle you with water. Water will come, out, will come out from you. So that's an image of the Holy Spirit. Remember John? Jesus in John 7 says, uh, I'm... Uh, uh, out of his belly will flow liver, rivers of living water. That's, that's an image of the Spirit. So, hallowed be your name is, hmm, ask God to help you live in such a way that you represent accurately who I am. So, hallowed be your name is not asking God to go do that hallowed thing. It's help us, God. 
help us to live in such a way that we are always growing, we're always driving in the right direction, we're always headed in the right direction of living into your presence. Does that make sense? Yes, no, makes sense, yeah. So hallowed be your name. Help us to be connected to you, to be alive to you, to be ever expanding that place where you dwell in our hearts. Hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. We had, we had a song earlier about thy kingdom. Um, I think we often think of kingdom in terms of ge- geography, right? We have a pretty clear notion of where Queen Elizabeth is in control, right? It's these islands, North Sea, close to Europe. Um, but there's another understanding of, king, of kingship or kingdom that is what's often called the, di- the, uh, the dynamic understanding. So uh, this may be not the best image, but think about, think about the country of Syria right now. There is, a, there is a leader, Bashar al-Assad, who is legally in charge of, the chief executive in charge of Syria. But there are clearly whole sections of that country that aren't under his control. So your kingdom come, your kingdom, dynamic kingship is, wow, may your will be done. So is God the king of everything he created? Yeah, he is. But certain areas are under rebellion. That's our, our, our earth is under rebellion. So, your, right, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? Where is, what's heaven? Heaven is where God's will is understood and accomplished. So may your kingdom come is a recognition that right now on earth, God's will may or may not be understood, and it largely isn't being accomplished. So your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom, one way to think about it is geography, but another way to think about it is is God's purpose. So right now, help us on this earth to be your agents, to be a part of your grand plan, to help this earth be functionally your kingdom and not just legally your kingdom. Does that make sense? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um... it's been common for about 15 years now for people to make the observation that the world we live in, the culture we live in, the postmodern culture, um, do you have in mind, like can you picture in your mind like the, the Bank America building in San Francisco, this tall, or the Sears Tower in Chicago, these tall, tall buildings, straight lines, and with you can see, you can actually see the, the long uh, um, uh, perpendicular lines and the horizontal lines. You can actually see the structure of the building. It makes sense. It's logical. That's a modern, that's modernist architecture. You can actually see how it's supported. But if you can imagine, like, if you've ever seen Frank Geary's Kodak Theater, 
in LA, which is totally, it, it's wacky shapes. That's a postmodern building. Wow. The postmodern world doesn't really make a lot of sense. All kinds, just a jumble of all kinds of things. It's chaotic. So a lot of people said our world is much, is much like the first century. I think an even better parallel, actually, is the, um, the fifth century. That was the, because that was, we're living in the second post-Christian era. Christianity had been the official religion of the Roman Empire for about 100 years when, uh, when, when the, Roman, the, the, the city of Rome was sacked by other Christians. And that freaked people out. And actually a whole bunch of people started going to temples that had been abandoned, temples to, other, the, to the Roman pagan gods. And so this caused Augustine to write what's probably the most important book in Western history after the Bible, The City of God. And what he argued there is he, he, he pointed out, wow, um, our world is dominated by empire history. Human beings who want to create empires for themselves. So let's understand it, that it has that, it has that inclination. Let's understand it. Let's recognize that it's chaotic. It's always going to be chaotic. And at times, our world, the leaders of our world, do stuff that looks really amenable to Christian faith. And then the very next day, or maybe even the very next minute, they do something that's, that's deeply opposed. We shouldn't trust it. So let's remember, we are, and, and the Latin word is peregrini, we are, we are um, sojourners here. Our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we're ambassadors. So he's drawing on St. Paul. An ambassador lives in a country that's not their own. Their home is somewhere else. But an ambassador, if they're any good, they understand the culture in which they live, and they have affection for it. They want to reach out to it. So, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's aim to be ambassadors of the kingdom to our culture. Let's recognize that at times it's going to be deeply antithetical to the Christian gospel. Let's not be surprised by that. Let's not assume we can trust it. We can't trust our culture to be Christian. It's not. But we can reach out to it with affection. So, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. I think I, made me, I, think I probably made this point the last time I was here, or tried to make this point. But I'll, I'll use the same image. Um, so we bought a house in Auburn, and, um, uh, and my wife, who has a degree, she has a degree in interior design which means um, it's never cheap uh, for me. That's how I think about it. I, 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 it's, never, it's never cheap. We don't, we, don't really, we don't go to Home Depot and buy everything in one fell swoop. So we have in our garage a refrigerator that's up, and the house is being remodeled right now, so we're not actually living there. But in the garage is a refrigerator that we bought maybe six years ago, which to me I think is perfectly fine. But it's apparently not uh, perfectly fine. So now we have already bought another one that hasn't, hasn't arrived yet. So I own two refrigerators. And I know that someday there's going to be like loaves of bread in the new refrigerator. But I know we're going to have frozen loaves of bread in the freezer and probably more in the garage freezer, right? Am I the only one that's going to have that issue? 
How, how, do you, how many loaves of bread do you think you have in your house? Anybody right now? Just one? Three? So, I mean, do you ever worry? Do you ever go to bed thinking, oh, oh, how am I going to get bread? To, anybody ever think that? Like, how am I going to get bread? No, I, I've, I've never thought that. That's a problem. Because what Jesus is saying here is, wow, you know, we need to learn how to live in conscious dependence upon God. One of the problems, actually, for us is we have so much stuff, most of us, that we don't have to depend on God until something catastrophic happens. But in the ancient world, most people live right on the edge of survival. So they knew what it was like to depend on God. So give us this day our daily bread as a reminder. Well, do whatever it takes in your life to, 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 to not count on your material stuff, on your success, on your banking, or whatever, but learn how to count on the God who loves you and built you to be in relationship to him. Not once a month in an emergency phone call, but every day. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation. Um, you know, this passage here, there's a parallel in one of the parables of Jesus, the unmerciful servant. Remember that passage where there's a, a servant who owes like 80, 80, zillion, 80 billion dollars to his master and the master forgives. And then the servant goes out and, and it's just like bust the chops of somebody who owes him like five bucks. I mean, it's crazy the, the, the difference in the parable. And then Jesus says, and this, he actually puts it this way, like, like um, if you don't forgive, the whole, the, the, our Father in Heaven won't forgive you. That just seems kind of like unlike other teaching about a forgiving God. In some ways, like this passage, almost seems like it's it seems kind of alien teaching. Um, I I think the way to understand this, though, is um, is uh, this is not so much about a, a, a legal transaction as it is about about how we approach life, because it isn't. It's mostly about the other person, right? The 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 theme, the subject is your relationship to this other person, and then. And then God is brought into the mix. So um, I'm going I'm to use this image, see if it makes sense for you. Um, so the, the Monterey Bay Aquarium, you've been in the Monterey Bay Aquarium, or you, even if you haven't, you can sort of imagine, like this giant, uh, it's a room maybe, the, a room the size of this uh, or bigger, that's a, that's a fish tank, and it's like, it, but take this roof and just imagine it being like uh, maybe 90 feet. So imagine all that water and there's a huge pane of glass that's maybe 40 feet high. And, and just a, a one single huge pane of glass that's 40 feet high and as wide as this whole room. So you've got to imagine, that's got to be, that's got to be one real thick pane of glass. Because there's like sharks over there and stuff like that. You know, Sharknado maybe over there. So you've got to be... Uh, but what but Jesus is saying, I think, is, is the forgiveness of God the, the compassionate heart of God 
is a powerful pulsating force like all that water on the other side of that glass. God wants to forgive. But the degree to which that forgiveness can wash over you, somehow, that's dependent upon you. If, you forg- if your forgiveness of other people is like a little tiny hole in that glass then that's all the water that is God's forgiveness that can flow over you. But if your forgiveness is wide, like, like, a, like a two-foot hole, then that's how much forgiveness of God you'll allow into your life. Does that make sense? Think about, like, even um, if you've known people that are, just, that are really unforgiving of others. They're often unforgiving of themselves. They're often very hard for them to accept God's forgiveness. So it's a dynamic about, um, not so much in a forensic way, a legal way, but it's a dynamic about, um, about our connection, the importance of being able to forgive others. With that generous heart. I think I, um, I think I have um, a lot of life figured out. And then, when I think a little deeper, I think actually no. I think externally, I think I think probably if people bother thinking about me, they might think, oh, his life seems pretty together. But I know uh, what, what parts are actually pretty crazy and ragged. The prayer, the Lord's Prayer reminds us that the God of the universe, bigger than we could ever imagine, loves you and me, loves each one of us, and wants nothing more than for us to allow him to connect, and I'll use it this way, to fix what's broken. We're broken and we cannot fix ourselves. And to connect with one another. It's what we are built for. And yet, we are often caught in the gravitational pull of our own selfishness. Let's live free of that. Live into the promise of God's love. Let's expand the place within us that God dwells. St. Teresa said, Maturity in the spiritual life comes when we recognize we should love God for what he wants to form in us and not for what we want him to form in us. The God of the universe loves you, made you, wants nothing more than to shower you with the blessing of his presence and love. Let's spend some time this week expanding the place 
where God lives within us and connecting more meaningfully with his people. Thank you, God, for your love for us, for your patience with us. We thank you that you always forgive. We confess our sorrow that we um, keep making the same mistakes. But we ask you to help us in our desire to be remade in the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray. And all God's people said.